Last week I spoke on only one point. That means I've got liberty to speak on nine points this evening. And I'm not kidding you. When the Lord Jesus taught his disciples, he spoke very simply using the uh, background of the people, their culture, their experiences in life. But in John 16 and verse 12, this is what he said to them. I have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. And so many times Jesus just gave his disciples, a glimpse of the truth. And later on, when Paul and Peter and John and the others wrote letters, they expanded on these little truths or glimpses that Jesus gave. Um, for example, he said to, uh, to Martha, Martha said, I know my brother will rise at the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection. On that last day, he said, I will be in charge. Just as Lazarus heard his voice after he had been dead four days, so one day all the dead will hear his voice. Some will rise to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and contempt. He told them exactly what would happen regarding his trial. He told them that he would be handed over to the uh, leaders, that they would mock him, they would scourge him, that he would suffer, that he would die, and that he would rise on the third day. And it turned out exactly as he said. He then also said to his disciples, uh, when to prepare for the final meal with them, he said, when you go into the village, you will meet a man carrying a pitcher of water. You are to follow him, go to the house and say, where is the room where we can prepare for the final meal with our master? And it turned out exactly as he said. Uh, in the parables, Jesus gives us pictures, or there are pictures of life that is known to all of the people in that culture. And what he did was this. He would give the truth in embryo form, or just a little glimpse of it. For example, Jesus never used the word grace. Never. But he taught it through the parables. Jesus never used the word adoption, but he taught it through the parables. Jesus never used the word advocate, but he taught it through the parables. And that's what we're going to do this evening. We're going to see what Jesus taught, and then we're going to see the application or the, the, the sort of explanation of it in the letters of the apostles. Uh, I think there's a very important thing to remember, though. Remember that when Jesus was on earth with his disciples, they did not know about the, tri the Trinity, the triune God. 
the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Co-eternal, co-equal. They did not know about that. So when he spoke about uh, the Father, for example, in the parables, what or the landowner, that person represented God. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three, because all three are involved in our salvation. So, uh, but bearing this in mind so that although you might speak to us about the Father in the parable of the prodigal son, yet you'll find that later on it was he himself that did it and it brings, comes out in the letters. The first point we have is that uh, in, the in the parable of the prodigal son, the father took the initiative. Yes, he even took the initiative when his son said to him, give me the portion of goods that's due to me. In fact, the son was saying to his father, you are no longer my father and I am no longer your son. And the father could easily have said to him, no ways, no ways, your job is to look after me in my old age. I'm not going to do that. He could have said that to him. But instead, he gave his son the liberty to do as he liked. He gave him the freedom to make his choice. And he chose to disown his father. And from then onwards, he was no longer the father of the son. And the son was no longer the son of the father. He cut himself off completely. And God gives us that same freedom of choice. He gives, we can go and choose which way we want to go. Do we want to go our own way? Or do we want to be part of his family? And the Bible says that, and so even in his giving of, to the son, what exactly what he wanted, he was in charge. Because he knew that his son would come back as a failure. And God knows that we will all one day come back as a failure. We'll all acknowledge that we have not lived according to what we should have done. And the Bible says here that no one seeks after God. There is none righteous, no, not one. But when the son comes back, you might say, oh, well, the son came back. Yes, but before he got back to the father, the father saw him a long way off and ran towards him. In other words, he took the first step in a certain sense of getting to that son and getting to him first of all. And as you know, he ran down the road and in the Middle East, a man never runs. He walks very slowly down the road. And for a man to run is to humble himself. He acted quickly. He humbled himself. In salvation, in Isaiah 59 and verse 16, God was amazed there was no intercessor. So his own arm worked salvation for him. In other words, God had to take the initiative. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God already had planned and prepared the way for us to be saved. He took the initiative. Uh, and God always takes the initiative. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Um, the, now, in the parable, the Father humbled himself. But this is what we read in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Christ Jesus, though being in the form of God, or in brackets, having the very nature of God, uh, humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. 
Second um, Corinthians. Uh, so the Godhead is involved, but Jesus in this case humbled himself. Second Corinthians five twenty one. He made him who knew no sin. God made him who knew no sin, that is Jesus, to be sin for us. In Isaiah 53, verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Lord has laid on him, the Lord Jesus, the iniquity of us all. So in salvation, God takes the initiative. Uh, in our own lives, my, me and Noreen, this is, uh, God has always taken the initiative. I was called, uh, I was a clerk in the railways, as you know, maybe you don't, but in 1960, God called me to Lebanon. And I went to the Bible Institute where Maurice has been and Mark is at the moment, and uh, I did something better than they did. I found my wife there. And, but I must tell you that I have no clue on how to deal with women. I simply am useless in dealing with women. My daughter will say amen to that probably as she's shaking her head or something like that. But anyway, and the point is this, I had to ask the Lord to help me how to make contact with this lady that I thought was too good for me. She was a queen, the, the queen as far as I was concerned at that place. But anyway, uh, God really did take the initiative and he brought us together and we've been together for 50 years now. Um, and then... Our children, it God took the initiative and enabled us to have our daughter here and our son who's coming from America in a couple of weeks' time. Our house, God took the initiative in 1980, making it possible for us to buy our house in 1984 without a bond and wonderfully providing for us. God did it. And I can't say I played any part except being a reluctantly obedient. Then in 1980, we were required to get personalized support. We had nothing. And I tried my best for three months and totally failed. I cried out to God, what do you want me to do? And the answer came, I don't want you to do anything. I want you to trust me. He gave us 110% support. That was his doing. And when people asked me on the mission field, how did you do it? I had to say to them, God did it. I didn't. And then... Uh, uh, in 1996, we went back to Lebanon for six years, and we've been here ever since. And uh, you ask me what now? We don't know. We haven't put our names down for any retirement place or any place to go to. We feel we'll just stay until God shows us the next step. But this is the point. It, God takes the initiative. In salvation, God takes the initiative. And you realize that we, like sheep, have gone astray, but the shepherd is the one that leads. We follow. All right, the second thing is that the lost dead man returned home only with a thought of a full stomach. Uh, he never thought of sonship. It never entered his mind. His idea was works. I will go to my father. I will say to him, uh, make me one of, your, one of your hired men, and so I'll work, and that's how I'll be able to be get a full stomach. So his only thought was full stomach and works. He planned by his own efforts to solve the problem. He never thought of grace. And this is an important statement I'm going to make now. 
you will never know the meaning of grace until you've experienced it. You might learn a definition of grace, but until you've experienced grace, you will know, never know what it means. Uh, there was a man in the, in the Philippian jail. And after the earthquake, he cried out, What must I do to be saved? What was he told? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. Just think of that for a moment. Uh, later on, I'm coming to another two verses very similar to that. Something has been left out. Something has been left out. I never saw it before. Anyway, let's say, say it again. The man said, what must I do to be saved? The answer came, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. Okay? Leave it for the time being. Uh, salvation is a gift. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. But the young man who was planning to get back so he could have a full stomach never thought of that. He didn't realize it was a gift. All right. Um, now the third point. The father, as we saw last week, ran down the road and got to his son first of all. It was a one-on-one -on -one experience. When he got there, there was nobody else because nobody else would run. So he's just on his own with his son, a one-on-one. -on -one. But the servants did not understand what was going on. Because they heard the son say eventually to his father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. Wait a minute, they say, how do we deal with this character? Is he the son or isn't he? And when people are born again, other people do not know what's going on. And Jesus made that very clear when he said to Nicodemus, you hear the sound of the wind, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going, so is everyone who's born of the Spirit. In other words, it's a mystery. How the Spirit works, when He works. Nobody can organize the Holy Spirit. He does the work. Uh, only when a change takes place in a person's life do you see the evidence of a person being born again. What changes take place? Grace affects every part of their lives. Their language changes. I have a neighbor who seems to use a swear word every now and then, and I can't understand. He's supposed to be a Christian, but anyway, our language changes. The certain words that he used to use, or person used to use, they disappear. He doesn't want to use them again. Our values change. Our priorities change. How we spend our time, and with whom. Our aim is to please God, and not ourselves. And peace and joy become our companions because our sins are forgiven and we share every problem with God. Saul of Tarsus was on the Damascus road and God met him. Jesus met him on the road. And he asked Saul of Tarsus, why are you persecuting me? And he said to Jesus, Who are you? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. It's hard for you to kick against the goats. Again, 
something is left out of that confrontation. It was a one-on-one, -on -one, but something was left out. Have you picked it up by now? Remember the other verse. Later, when, and now we come to one of the letters that Paul wrote, that same man. This is what he wrote. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. There's a one-on-one -on -one for you. I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. There's a one-on-one -on -one for you. That was a one-on-one -on -one experience for Saul of Tarsus. It must also be for us. A one-on-one. -on -one. The fourth thing. When the son came back, he gave back to his father the freedom to do just as he liked with him. Previously, he had taken away that freedom. He took away from his father by disowning him. He took away from him the freedom to advise him because he was more experienced in life. To provide for him because he had the resources. To support him and encourage him by his presence. He took away that freedom. Now when he comes back, he gives back to his father the freedom to do with him just as he liked. To order his life as he pleased. And think of what happened to him when he came back to his father. How much his father did for him. He ran. He humbled himself. He embraced him. He kissed him. He put a robe around him. Or the servants did it. A ring on his finger. Sandal on his feet. Killed the fatted calf. He just received and received and received and received. And uh, he received much more than he expected. And if you ever want to know what is the meaning of grace then look at that rotten so-and-so and how much he received. He didn't deserve any of it. That's grace. Jesus taught that. But later on, we discover it. Where else he wrote it. But when that son came back, he gave back to his father the freedom to, to plan his life. And in John's Gospel, chapter 1 and verse 12, it says, As many as received Jesus... That means, in Middle Eastern culture, as many as welcomed him into their lives, and they then said, and my resources and my life are at your disposal. That's what it means to receive Jesus. Ephesians 2.10 We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we're letting God arrange our lives for us. To order our lives, our circumstances as he chooses. Times to speak and witness. Times to shut up and keep quiet. Times to, be, times to learn. Times to study. Not just for Mark, but for everybody. Time to recover and time to rest. Time to go home and also time to be with him. He orders everything. There was a, uh, a reverend, some of you know the story, others don't, for it's a long time ago now. I heard it when I was on deputation in the car. Uh, James Dobson gave it to Radio Pulpit 
of this reverend in America who lost his voice. And when a minister loses his voice, he can't preach. And he had to leave the ministry with his wife. And three years to the day he lost his voice, his church invited him to come and preach to them. But he says, I haven't got a voice. Well, they said, we'll turn the microphone the loudest possible and you just whisper into that. And we will listen to you. And as he whispered his message to them, one word came out clearly. And then he kept on. And then two words came out clearly. And he kept on. And he said to them, something is happening. And his voice came back while he was preaching. And he was able to go back into the ministry. God ordered his life. Took him out of the ministry. Kept him quiet for three years. Brought him back into the ministry. Probably a far better preacher than ever before. But God is the one that orders our lives. And we've got to leave it to him. Our problem is not to complain and want to go our own way, but to accept his ordering of our lives. All right. Fifth point. The father, the son never expected such a welcome. The father humbling himself publicly, embracing him, kissing him before a word was spoken. Then he received a robe covering his past failures, seal ring of sonship, sandals for sore feet. He was a son, not a slave. A calf killed and a feast with great rejoicing. What Jesus was teaching here is to bring that lost young man. We can't call him a son anymore because he's cut himself off from his father. He's bringing that lost man and adopting him back into the family. He gives him a seal ring. It's a ring of the father. So wherever he acted, went with that seal ring, it was as though the father was there. And you know yourselves, we have been given the Holy Spirit of promise. With that seal. We've been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Um, and, and Jesus would never have used the word adoption. Because the word adoption was foreign to the Jew. You the Jew would never adopt a person. Because that would complicate the estate. The Arabs, where we lived, they would never adopt. It's the foreigners that adopt. And, and one, the lawyer said to me, Will your daughter uh, get your estate? And we had nothing at the time to get. But anyway, would your daughter get your estate? I said, yes, she would. Oh, she said, you are a better person than I am. But anyway. All right, but again, to Jesus would never have used the word adoption because it was a Roman custom. And later on, uh, Paul wrote the following in two different places. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of sonship. When we cry, Abba, Father, it is the spirit himself bearing witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now, you know, we used to sing a chorus in this place, which we don't sing anymore because we don't sing from the BHB. I used to appreciate Alf Skibbies giving out memes from the BHB, Believer's Hymn Book. So you don't mind singing. Behold, what manner of love, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us. 
that we, that we should be called, should be called the sons of God. Come on, you can join me. Behold, what manner of love, what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we, that we should be called, should be called the sons of God. So what has happened? God adopts us into his family. We all adopted through faith in the Lord Jesus. We all made members of his family. We didn't deserve to be adopted. That son, that young man that came back, didn't deserve to be. But this father made him part of the family. And he really... All right. Now, verse number six. All that the father did was to lavish grace upon his son. And as I said before, Jesus never used the word but taught it. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, that we know so well, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Want to know about grace? Just remember all that that was done for that son. A robe that covered his past life and reflected the honor of the father. A seal ring that carried the authority and power of the Father. You have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sandals showing that he was no longer a slave, but a son. Romans chapter 6 and verse 6. Again, the outworking of, of what Jesus taught about grace. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the sinful body might be destroyed and we might no longer be enslaved to sin. Having been set free from sin, you become slaves of righteousness. Then the fatted calf was killed to bring about reconcilia reconciliation with the entire family. But what did the father do? He had to pay the price for that to take place. So they could be rejoicing. So that the son could meet everybody and there would be nothing between him and them. Regarding the past. Unlike at Midway, they learned to forget the past there. All right. Um, and in Ephesians 2, verse 7, we have redemption. The price is paid. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. And there was a sound of music and dancing and celebration. I've seen one person in this place not just sing, but move and, and dance a little bit every now and then, but I won't say who she is. Anyway, but what has happened in Philippians 4.4? Rejoice in the Lord again, and I say rejoice. And then something happens in point seven. When the, son, when the lost man came back, he admitted total failure. He said, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Okay? And we think that that's an integral part of salvation. But in Romans 10 verse 9 says the following. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Can anybody point out what's missing in those three verses that I've read out? The first verse was, What must I do to be saved? Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your household. 
Who are you, Lord? Why are you persecuting the interaction between Jesus and Saul? And now, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. What's been left out? There is no mention of sin. None at all. Later on, these people declare, that's another story. But at the time, there's no mention of sin. I was really struck by that as I prepared this. Do you see what is important? That after the resurrection of Jesus, when our sins have been dealt with, sin has been passed, it's, it's, it's passed, it's history. And now the question is this, is responding to the person of the Lord Jesus in every case. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. The focus is on Jesus, not on your sin. Like that man in the prodigal son. I've sinned against heaven in your sight. But that's been dealt with. Now, your response is to Jesus. And then, uh, and then what happened to the son? After he had declared that, do you notice he said nothing else? And I asked the question, why did he say nothing else? Well, of course, Jesus couldn't bring out everything in the parable, but the fact is that he didn't say anything else. Why? I think it was because he was overwhelmed by the reception he got. Let me tell you, if you were expecting to be a servant, and you have to work for the rest of your life, and that's just blotted out, and you are treated as a son, you are a member of the family, and you can just rejoice with everybody, and, you're, and the father is treating you as though you've never ever sinned. Hey, who would ever have to, anything to say but rejoicing? Now, we had a, 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 a fellow student at the Bible Institute, and uh, let me tell you, his life history was not so good. Uh, he, um, he was a bit of an alcoholic, and uh, he promised his wife that he would not drink ex anything except champagne at the wedding that he went to. Not his wedding, but somebody else's. And uh, there were 12 bottles of champagne there. So he consumed champagne galore. And he danced, he said, with his mother-in-law in the streets of Pretoria. Then he went to a little meeting uh, run by some brethren from Central Assembly in near his suburb. And uh, there he and his wife gave their hearts to the Lord. His name is Roly Pierce. And uh, Roly used to give his testimony at the Bible Institute. And whenever he gave it, he used to break down and weep. Because he was overwhelmed by how much Jesus had done for him. And, uh, and I rejoice in that. But listen to what Paul says in 1 Timothy 1.13. Though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and insulted Christ Jesus our Lord. Just think about that. Though I formerly blasphemed and persecuted and insulted Christ Jesus our Lord, I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Grace overflowing. That was Paul's experience. 
And remember, he didn't confess his sins when he met Jesus, but he certainly did that afterwards. Eighth point. The father said nothing to his son. Do you realize that? I've often asked the question, why did he say nothing to his son? Well, his appearance and the odor of the pigsty was obvious to everybody. He did not want to prolong, prolong the agony of the loss of everything. He did not want to increase his shame. The same with us. God the Father welcomes us home. He never upbraids us when we ask for wisdom. That's in the book of James. When we come as children, uh, oh, he, when we confess our sins, he never says, I told you so, or what you did wrong. He never reminds us of our past, unlike some people. When we come as children, it gives us pleasure. When we come as children to him, like children, it gives, us, gives him pleasure to reveal his truths to us. When our shame in the past, which was dealt with long ago, comes into our minds, it's not God that brings it there. It's the enemy of our souls. When God forgives, he forgets. And we must do so too. How many times? While we're alive, never to stop. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But this is an important point. We must forgive ourselves. We can't constantly have regret. Why did I do this? Why did I say that? Etc. That has been dealt with. The past has been dealt with. All have sinned. All have failed God's test. When we came to faith in Christ, God forgave us. We must also do that. We must forgive ourselves as God has forgiven us. Why allow the failures of the past to spoil the joy of the present? You remember how Jesus rebuked Peter? Actually, he was rebuking Satan. He said, Satan, get behind me. Satan used Peter to get to Jesus. And Satan can use other people to get us down and depress us. But he can also, we are told in the book of Revelation chapter 12, chapter 12 that he is the accuser of the brethren. He accuses them day and night. And the Bible says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. And we have got to say to ourselves, No, I was forgiven. My sins have been blotted out. No, and not allow the evil one to depress us and discourage us. And the last point, and that's number nine. The father was rebuked by the elder brother. I've never seen this point before, by the way. For the way he had received his younger brother. And the way he treated him. You killed the fatted calf for him. I've never done anything wrong. You never gave me a cough. Etc. You killed, you, you, you treat him specially. And what does the father do? He defends his actions regarding his younger son. He said, this my son was dead 
and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What's he saying? There's no alternative. I had to do this to restore him. And what's happening here in this incident? Jesus is teaching about the fact that after we've been saved and when we have gone astray and we've gone our own way, etc., we are told in 1 John 2, 1, if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And of course we are discover later on in the letters, we is not just an advocate, we have a high priest, we have a mediator, Jesus Christ the righteous. So in all these incidents, or little glimpses that he gives us of truths, the letters expanded and expounded more and more. And so our conclusion this evening... Let's go through them quickly. Jesus taught about salvation by grace through faith. That salvation is the work of God. And people need to be born of God. Going, saying the right words doesn't mean anything unless God does a work. God is in control and waits for us to submit our will to his will. Salvation is a one-on-one. -on -one, one at a time. Jesus taught adoption. One at a time. Jesus taught that God does not remind us of our failures, but rejoices in our return to him. Once our sins are forgiven, they are never recalled by God. That's terrific. We sing that one hymn. I think there's a, my sins not in part, but the full are covered. Jesus taught that God humbled himself. God became a baby, put up with violent opposition. I'm rather struck with that statement. He put up with violent opposition. You know, you think about all the power that he had. He could have called on 12 legions. He could have snuffed out the opposition at any time. But he didn't. And all those people that opposed him all that time, the religious leaders, etc., why he could have wiped out the lot and started all over again. But he didn't. He humbled himself, died, those sinless for a sinner like you and me to protect us from the righteous anger of God. Jesus taught that God continues to safeguard us after we've been restored, even when we go astray, as he himself, who is alive, intercedes for us. Now, that's the gospel. That's good news. What a message to pass on to others. Amen.